0: Well, good morning again. Uh, so, uh, during the week, I, I have a corporate job, and uh, we were a couple weeks ago at a team meeting, and uh, all the business had been taken care of, which wasn't much, and we were all just kind of talking about what was happening in our lives. And one of the ladies on our team, uh, she's expecting her first child, and so she looked around the room because there's about half of us in there, probably five or six, that have kids. And she's entering that last trimester. She was like, What do I need to be ready for? Like, what am I not expecting? What, what, what's happening here? You know, like, help me. And so the parents start listing off these things. And a lot of them are talking about things that you take for granted when you don't have kids. So they're like, Well, enjoy your sleep. Take as many naps as you can now because you're going to be unbelievably tired once the child shows up. Uh, you should go to movies because you won't go to movies anymore once you have kids. If there's any nice restaurants that you like to go to and sit down and actually eat your food warm, go to those now. Um, be ready to be kind of broke because you think you'll have everything you need and then you won't have everything you need and you'll just find that you need more and more stuff. Um, they're like, be ready to like never look as good as you look now because you will not have as much time to put yourself together because you'll be focusing on them. Uh, you know, Hey, get used to always being late. You're going to be late wherever you go from now on. And I was kind of quiet throughout it all. And um, she came to me, and she goes, so what about you, Luke? What do you think? And I said, well, everything they said is right. I said, you will be tired. You will deal with more poop and pee and vomit than you've ever dealt with in your entire life. You will be tired at times, and there are definitely things you won't do anymore at moments. I said, but the biggest thing they're missing is you won't care about any of that. All those things are completely and utterly worth it. You'll be up at 3 a.m. tired and holding this baby that's crying and going, this is awesome. This is amazing. And I said, so, yes, your life will change. And there is a ton of sacrifice that you will make. But you're going to love it. It's absolutely amazing. And I said, we tend to focus on all the bad parts but there's so much good that comes with it that you can't even imagine. And so today what I want to talk to you guys about is as we get in the right mindset to talk about child dedication, is I want to talk about just one aspect of parenting that God's word opens our minds to. And it's about the proper way we view our children in our lives. And so there's a million things that we could talk about when it comes to parenting, and God's word is full Of wisdom on this topic. I think there's one key foundational point that sets us up the best to be good parents in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 19. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, we're in the Old Testament and we are in the nation of Israel. And so this is God's people led by God. And in this time, what you have is you have these priests that God uses as messengers to the people. So God speaks to them, and they deliver a message to the people. But it is God who is truly leading the people. There is no king. And in this story that we're going to talk about, we're going to see two different parents with two different perspectives on their children's lives. And I want us to look at both those perspectives and realize which one God is pointing to us as being wise. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 9, we are introduced to Hannah. It says, Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh, and now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come to his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. And as for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought that she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman. For I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away, or went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and returned again to their house in Ramah. So in this passage, we encounter two people. The first is we encounter this woman, Hannah. And Hannah is in... A stressful situation in her life. She is married to a man that loves the Lord, but has his flaws. And one of the flaws of his life is that he's a polygamist. He's married to not just Hannah, but to another woman. And though scripture tells us that he had a greater affection for Hannah, it is his other wife that had produced children for him, heirs. And in all cultures, but especially in the Old Testament cultures, creating children and having an heir was a huge thing to a family. It's what allowed the legacy to move forward. It's what allowed the wealth to move forward. It's what allowed all the possessions and that legacy of that family to move along. And not only is there this stress that you have a household where there's two wives and one has produced children and one hasn't, but the wife that's produced children uses this to ridicule and to mock and to hate upon Hannah. And so this becomes an unbelievable stress to her that she hasn't been able to have a child. And she wants this child not just to produce an heir for her her husband, but also because she realizes that children are the sign of God's greatest blessing. and She wants to experience that. And so what we see here is we see her going to the mountaintop just as good Israelites did, and we see her worshiping. And in that worship, she is praying with a great passion and intensity that God will remember her and give her a child. It's here That we encounter a second person it's here that we encounter eli now eli lives in a very different world than hannah eli is the priest of israel he directly communicates with god he hears his voice he is in a position of power and authority he is well respected and he has children And Eli sees her, and he sees this intensity of prayer, and it tells you a little bit about his character, that when he sees her praying like this, he doesn't read it as something good. He assumes she must be drunk. That kind of intensity that she has, he's not used to seeing that on a regular basis. And so Eli talks to her, and he tells her to not be stressed, and he tells her that he wishes God will be with her. And it's in this moment moment where these two meet that you actually encounter, as you look at the wider context of Scripture, two very different personalities who had two very different approaches to parenting. Eli, on the surface, looks like a good man. If you look at his story throughout Scripture, you see him desiring good for the people of Israel. You see him praying and working towards their good and to their blessing and, and to seeing the nation prosper. You see him verbally and outwardly try to honor God, try to point people to the Lord. You also verbally and superficially see him declare that he has a hatred for evil and for sin. And so from the surface view, it looks like Eli is this godly man, and you would assume a godly parent. But as you read the Bible, you realize that is not true. Eli is not a good parent at all. And as you go throughout Scripture, you read about what his children do. And it's not that he just raises okay children. No, he raises children that actually embrace evil. And I would argue evil of the absolute worst kind. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip to Samuel chapter, or 1 Samuel chapter 2. And as you're going there, let me kind of give you a context of this this culture that Samuel and his family lives in. In Judges 21-25, it says it about this time. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so this environment that Eli is raising his children in is a unique one because what's happened to the culture of that day is the people no longer believe in absolute truth. There no longer is this idea of good and evil, right and wrong, black and white. Everything is relative. No one authority declares for these people what is right or wrong in their eyes. Each of them determines for themselves what they think is good. Now, as you look at that, I think most of you would acknowledge that sounds very similar to the environment you currently live in. We live in a society that no longer believes in good and evil, right and wrong. In fact, nowadays, we live in a society where things that for centuries nobody has ever debated, that you believed were unbelievably easy to tell, we now go, nope, can't decide that. Can't look at a person and know if they're male or female. Nope, that's not determined by your body. That's something that I can decide. Even in legal systems that we look at in our politics, we have people who no longer base things on facts, no longer base what we do on law. We've become a society that goes, I will do what I feel is right, and who are you to tell me I'm wrong? There no longer is a standard of truth. And so brothers and sisters, what we do need to acknowledge about this environment that Eli's in and this environment that you and I are in is that when the culture around you will not lead your children to truth, you have to be more intentional. You have to be steadfast. You have to hold your ground and intentionally and purposely, each and every day, lead them to the right place. Because if you're expecting the culture around you to do so, it will not. It will not teach them these things. What we will see with Eli is, well, he personally and superficially, I would argue, seemed to adhere to the right values. When it came to be a parent and instilling those values in his children, he was lazy. And instead of him fighting the culture around him, instead of him teaching them to stand against the evil, he allowed the children to go their own way. And we will see here in chapter 2 that leads to devastating results. In chapter 2, verse 12 through 17, it tells us about just some of the sins of Eli's children. It says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Don't you love how God just doesn't (laughs) gloss over the fact at all? I mean, I don't know about you, but can you imagine being in the Bible and then the sentence about you is, they were worthless Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priest with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot and all that the fork brought up for the priest he would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. And also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, This must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire, then they would say to them, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. So let me give you context of what's happening here. God is a God of order. God is a God of structure. In Old Testament Israel, the temple system was very detailed in what God was asking his people to do. And so when you gave offerings, you didn't just show up with an animal and throw it on the altar. There was a process. There was a way you did that. And it was to be done with detail and passion and intensity. Why? Because in each step of obedience, what you were showing God is God, I love you. I love you and I respect you and I honor you and I'm going to do these details right because this is important to me. And so, while it was true that priests, like Eli's son, were given portions of meat from the general population to eat, there was a way they were supposed to be prepared. Well, Eli's sons realized the way that the meat was to be prepared was making them take less. And so what they decided is, forget what God says. Forget God's process and God's rules. We're going to show up, and we're going to take what we want. And so what I want you to understand about this is, some of you may go, well, that's thie- you know, thievery, of course, that's bad. No, this is worse. This is people using God's power. God's authority, God's position to sin. This is people taking what God has built for the purpose of holiness and righteousness and using it to elevate themselves. And that's what Eli's sons were doing. They were taking the sacrificial system, which was supposed to be something of purity and holiness and bringing people closer to God, and they were using it to make themselves rich and wealthy. But it doesn't stop there. As we move forward in chapter 2, verses 22 through 29, we see that they go to an even worse distance. It says, Now Eli was very old, and he had heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear that the Lord's people are circulating. So what I want you to see here is in addition to stealing the offering they have turned God's temple into a brothel. Women who are coming to the temple to serve the Lord Eli's sons are using for their own pleasure. And they're doing it at the steps of the temple for all of Israel to see. This is why the Bible says these men are worthless. These are not men who have veered into sin accidentally. These are not men with bad habits. These are men who have taken God's power and authority and are using it to participate in sin, to bring others into sin, to disgrace God, and to do it in the worst and most public way. Now, brothers and sisters, what I want you to focus on, though, for a second is not the sons. I want you to focus on Eli. Eli confronts them. Eli says, I hear what you're doing, and it's wrong. Now, when you first hear that, you go, well, that's good, right? He's acknowledging that his children have gone the wrong way. But, brothers and sisters, the problem is that's where it stops. He just has a talk with them. That's it. And if we look at the rest of the passage, I want you to pay attention to what God says to Eli about this. In verse 25, it says, if one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father for the Lord desired to put them to the death. Now, the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. And then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me? And in doing this, making yourself fat with the choicest of every offering of the people of Israel. So here's what God says to Eli. Eli, there's two problems with what's happening here. One is, is, well, you've spoken to it. You have not addressed this. You know what I built this house for. You know what I have put you in position to do. And you understand the depths of the blessing which I laid at your feet. You do not do this out of ignorance. You do this with knowledge. And with that knowledge, you allow your children to desecrate my laws. And you do it for two reasons. You do it because you honor and love them more than you love me and you also do it, Eli, because it has made you wealthy. See, what people miss sometimes about the wording here is the character of Eli is very often described as being heavy. Well, for a person to be heavy back then was not typically because they just had bad genes. It's normally because of exactly what you and I experience in this country where we have unbelievable wealth. Having food is not a problem for us. And so, well, regular people would go through times of famine. Eli, even though he knew his sons were taking these offerings illegally and wrongly, guess what he was doing? The insinuation is that he was sharing in them with them. That he knew his children were taking the wrong stuff and they were doing it for the wrong reason. And he would tell them, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. Let's go ahead and sit down and eat. And what I want you guys to focus on is I want you to focus on what God says the root of this is. Eli, you honor your children more than you honor me. Eli, you honor your children more than you honor me. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a hard thing for us when we have kids because if we're real, when you have your children, you feel like your heart expands. I grew up as a kid watching The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. There's always that scene at the end where he's about to throw all the presents off the cliff and he hears the people singing and then they show his heart expanding two sides bigger. I felt like that's exactly what happens to you when your child is laid in your hands. I always share this, but it's just one of those things. I, I was arrogant before I had children in that I thought I kind of knew what it would be like to love them. You know, I'd worked with kids, I'd mentored children, I was a children's pastor. I figured, like, I I know what it's like to love little kids and to pray for them and hope for them and and build them up. It can't be that different. And I remember my parents being like, no, it's way different. You cannot understand until you have your own. And I swear to you, that second Tyler was laid in my hands, I was like, okay, I get it. I get it, this is different. This is beyond words and how different this love is. Now, brothers and sisters, what God's saying to us is that love, that intensity of love you have for those precious little children, it still needs to pale in comparison to the love that you have for him. And it's not just here that we find it. Remember, Jesus words this unbelievably well for us. And he does so in such a way that it's hard to hear. Right In the New Testament, he tells us, Sorry, let me jump here. He tells us, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, is God telling you to hate your children? Absolutely not. God nowhere permits for us to hate. In fact, we've talked about this a great extent over the last few weeks. One of the most beautiful things about Christianity is that we are called to love even those who are our enemies. What Jesus is saying here, though, is in comparison, in comparison, the love that you have for him should make all other loves feel so less. And if you don't have that, then something's wrong. And see, for Eli, because he didn't have that, because he honored his children more than he honored God, because he loved his children more than he loved God, he was unwilling to discipline his children. And brothers and sisters, if we look back at Scripture, it regularly talks to us about the need to discipline. Proverbs 13, 24, it says, He who withholds the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. What was the problem with Eli? He was willing to acknowledge the actions were wrong, but when it came time to show power behind those words, would he? No. When it came time to show power behind those words, he would not do it. Look at Proverbs nineteen eighteen. Discipline your son while there is hope, and do not desire his death. What are they saying? They're saying when they're young, And when you're shaping them and you're building them, that is when you can exhibit discipline in them to change their character. And let me just give you my translation of do not desire their death. Do not raise children that you think are jerks. I know some parents who do not like their own children. Let me give you a big hint. If you don't like your kid, nobody else does. If you're looking at your kid who has your hair and your eyes and your nose and has your mannerisms and you're like, I cannot stand this child, please get them away from me. Nobody else likes them either. And brothers and sisters, what we've got to acknowledge is do something about that. Because it's not loving for you to watch that happen and go, well, out of my hands out of my hands. God's saying to us, no, you have a responsibility here. And if you really love them, discipline is part of it. Eli wasn't really to go there. Look at Proverbs 22, 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from them. What God's saying to you through this is, Your beautiful, loving children are little sinners. And trust me, like, I think I have gorgeous little sinners at my house. I think they're beautiful. But they are that. They are little sinners. We all are. And if we don't work to pull that sin away from them, to pull it out of their lives and to put them on the path for Christ, to put them on the path of righteousness, they will be pulled by this world to darkness. Now, I want to contrast this view that Eli had with Hannah's because I think in how Hannah approaches the life of her child, there is a very beautiful lesson for you and I, a very beautiful lesson that gives us the foundation to good parenting. Hannah views her son in a different way than Eli views his. Notice when Hannah comes to the Lord before she has a child she does not view having a child as just a biological thing. She views it as a spiritual thing. She realizes this isn't about physiology. This is about God blessing me with a child. This is about God giving me a child to care for. And I think it's a huge thing for you and I to understand that our children aren't just accidents. They're not just experiments. They're not just the results of physical interactions. Our children are more than that. They're much more. If we look at her prayer in 1 Samuel 27 through 28, she says, for this child I prayed and the Lord has granted my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord. So the promise that Hannah made before she had a child and she fulfilled after she had a child was that, God, I know this son comes from you. I know he's yours. And if you will bless me with him, if you will bless me with this child, then I will dedicate his life to your service. I will take that gift you've given me and I will point him on a path to serve you, Lord. He will be yours. And it's exactly what she does. She has the child, and she cares for him and raises him to the time that he is weaned, so probably around three, four years old back then. And then she takes him to the temple to be trained. And she still comes and checks on him and provides for him and brings him a cloak, but she has given her son over to the service of the Lord, acknowledging that that child that God gave her is God's child. And brothers and sisters, to be honest with you, I think that's the biggest thing I want you to get. Those children are not yours.
1: Amen. They're God's. Amen.
0: The children that God has given us in our lives, they are His. As Psalm 139 tells us, it is he that made them. It says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my own form substance and your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there had been none of them. The children that God gives us, he's the one that built them. Amen. Well, they may look like you. They may sound like you. It is God who wove their spirits together. They are handcrafted masterpieces of the Almighty. And he has given them to you to take care of. Brothers and sisters, I think this is one of the most important things for us to understand, not just about our children, but our own lives. It's weird to me, but I find it to be truthful, that when we have something that we believe is our own, we're actually okay with mistreating it. The, 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 the example I always give is, is, is my cars. The first car I ever drove was not mine, it was my parents. And it is by far the vehicle that I have treated the best in my entire life. I washed that car at least every other week. I didn't let there be trash in it. I made sure the gas tank was full. I made sure that there would never be anything in it that if they would see that, They would feel like I wasn't respecting the gift or respecting them. I knew it wasn't mine, and I needed to show respect in the way I treated it. I wish I could say that about my current vehicle. I don't remember the last time I washed my car. and I'm ashamed to say that if there was a zombie apocalypse, you could probably live for two months off the raisins and goldfish that are in the backseat of my vehicle. If you would compare my first car to this one, you would go, the same person cannot own these two things. But it does. And the reason is because with my car, I don't feel like I'm sending a message to anybody but myself. I bought it. It's mine. I own it. doesn't hurt anybody how I treat it. The other one, though, that wasn't mine. I was responsible to somebody with how I treated it. And the care that I showed for it communicated a message to them. And so, brothers and sisters, what I want you to realize today is that those children you have aren't yours. They're God's, and they're being lent to you by him. He loves them more than you do. He has shaped them more than you ever will. And he has given them into your possession to take care of them. Now, the beauty of that is that it's the coolest and the most amazing and most fulfilling job you could ever imagine? That God would take the most precious thing He has and come to us and go, Here, I want you to take care of it for me. What an honor. What a gift. What an unbelievable joy to have that. And what you love about children and what you should love about your own children is do you know what they really are? They're reflections of God. Whenever we run into people that we love in this world, people that make us laugh, people that are unbelievably funny or logical or smart, whenever you see qualities of people that you just love, that's not them. It's a reflection of the Father. It's a reflection of the one who wove them together in the womb. The humor you see in funny people is not of their own generation. It is the reflection of the humor of God. The brilliance that you see in people's minds is not their own brilliance. It's the brilliance that reflects poorly, may I say, our God. And those beautiful little kids that you get, all the things that you love about them, all the things that bring you joy, all the things that make you excited, the reflections of your God. And you have a responsibility to help them go on the right path. To go the right way. Well, most of us will probably, and I I would not recommend this, show up with your children and come bring them to me and say they're yours now. I'm dedicating to the service of the Lord. Each and every one of us spiritually should understand that's exactly what we do with our kids. We are called to acknowledge that their lives have been given to them by God and for the purpose of the kingdom and for the service of the Lord. And our duty is to put them on that path. Our duty is to love them and to guide them that way. And I also want to challenge you with one last thing. Some of you may sit there and go, well, I don't have kids, so this doesn't impact me. Yes, it does, because you're somebody's child. Which means all those wonderful things I've said about your children are true of you. You are a handcrafted masterpiece of God. You are we're not created for your own purposes. You were not created for your own life. You are responsible for the way that you live to him.
1: Amen.
0: You are responsible with the talents and the gifts and the abilities that he has given you to reflect him. That's such a cool thing when that happens in life. I have the unique opportunity to work at a company that my father used to work for. And so I also have the unique opportunity to present to people publicly that he has presented to. And whenever that happens, this weird thing occurs where like, I'll be presenting and talking, and I'll see some people in the crowd giving me weird looks. Now granted, people give me weird looks all the time, but I can see they're kind of like trying to process something. And normally, after I'm done, someone will come up to me and they'll go, you, "It was freaking me out the whole time you were talking." And I'm like, "What? What, was, what had you?" And they're like, "The whole time you were talking, I was like, "I know this guy, but I know I've never met him before." And I couldn't, I couldn't understand why. And then I looked at your last name and I realized I know your dad. And they're like the whole time you were presenting, I was like, that looks like Jim. Cause the way you talk and the hand motions you have and the way you use the floor, that's not like you, that's like him. And so it was blowing my mind because the whole time I was like, I've seen this before, but not from this person. How is this possible? And it's because in those moments, what they're seeing is the reflection. They're seeing me reflect my Father. Well, there's this beautiful thing that we read about in Scripture where a couple of the disciples are pulled before the court. And pressure is applied to them. And they're put into a position where they're supposed to be afraid and terrified. And instead, they respond with unbelievable power, with boldness, with courage, and with love. And the Sanhedrin looks at these men after they do that and they go, you've been with Jesus, haven't you? The only place that we've ever seen that kind of power, that kind of boldness, that kind of courage is with Jesus Christ. So you clearly must belong to him. As parents, that should be the desire of our hearts. It's not just that our children reflect us, but more importantly, they reflect their true father, God. How blessed would we be one day to have our children living lives that when people around them look at them, they go, you know, when you do that, it kind of reminds me of Christ. The way you love reminds me of Father God. The courage that you show that looks like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, don't be fooled by what the world tells you. Your children are not yours, they're God's. And your life is not your own, it is his. And when we live that way, we will experience more blessing, more power, and more love than we could ever dream of. Don't go down the path of Eli letting the world pull your children away. Go down the path of Hannah that acknowledges they are directly from God and you will do your very best to help them serve the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for our lives. The Lord, you've given us another day. Another day to know you, Lord. Another day to walk in your steps. Another day to serve you, God. Father, for those of us that are parents, we thank you for the gift of the children that you've put into our hands and into our lives. We are thankful that you have trusted us with such a responsibility and at the same time given us so much joy, so much happiness, so much love. Father, we come before you today. And while we know that we can't be perfect, we pray, Father, that in the way that we live and in the way that we raise our children, that we will show you, that we love you, that we honor you, and that we serve you. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your love. And thank you for the discipline that you've put into our lives. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to ask uh, Brother Joe to come up with me, uh, Brother James to be in the back with Brother Matt. And uh, we're just going to do a time of prayer. If there is anything on your hearts that you want to know that somebody else is praying for, feel free to come see any of these men and pray with them. And as always, if you don't feel comfortable doing that now, please seek us out anytime after. We are always here to talk with you. We are always here to pray with you. We're always here to help you along this journey. Parents, if you have children who are being dedicated at the end of service today, I would ask you at this time to go ahead and grab them from Children's Church if they're back there. Same with their siblings. And after this time of prayer, I'm going to ask all the families to come forward for the child dedication.
1: Let's all stand. Precious blood of Jesus Christ Leave behind your regrets and mistakes Come today, there's no reason to wait Jesus is calling a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? Sing hallelujah. Christ is risen. Bow down before Sing hallelujah Christ is risen Oh what a The Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness was bought with The precious blood of Jesus Christ
0: Thank you, Jesus. If you all wouldn't mind being seated, we've got to have a few families coming the
1: forward. the cross as you wish. For
0: the crowd. After the song's over.
1: Tell the world of the treasure found.
0: I did that on purpose for dramatic effect. You know, I'm speaking and the music is playing. It's beautiful, right? <laughs> uh, we have a few families coming up today uh, for child dedication, which I think more appropriately is actually parent dedication. Uh, we have Dan and Margaret with their son Damien, and also the two brothers Ethan and Derek, if you guys want to come up. We have Matt and Sabrina with Gabriella and her two brothers, Adam and Luke. We have Ian and Deidre with their daughter, Athena. And then we have the gradualist family. We have Nicole, myself, our little baby girl, Elle, and her brothers, Jake and Ty. Also, at this time, any of the extended family that is here, grandparents, aunts, uncles, Uh, we ask you to go ahead and come forward as well. We also have with us uh, Shelby and Autumn. And and so, when we do child dedication, we're not saying anything we're doing today has anything to do with the souls of these children. We believe that these children will make their own choices on whether to follow the Lord and to be his servants. But what we are saying is that these parents stand before you saying that with the best of their ability, they are gonna raise these children to know the Lord Jesus Christ and to raise them in accordance with the wisdom of the word. And so parents, if you could affirm, do you commit to raise these children according to the word of God and to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? The second thing we're asking is that you, the church family, that you acknowledge that you will support them, that you'll support them in prayer, You'll support them in wisdom. You'll support them in guidance. You'll do your very best to also be godly examples to them. Church, do we commit to do that? That was weak, church. Do we commit to do that? (laughs) Amen. I'm going to ask each of you in the audience to just quietly go to the Lord in prayer as I and Brother Joe go to each of these families and give a blessing to the children. Joe, would you mind coming and helping me? What a beautiful thing to have families and young children being pointed towards the Lord. I encourage you to remember as we're closing today a couple things. Remember that you've been given a spirit by your Father, not of fear, not of timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. And remember that you have a mission, a mission to go out into this world and to make disciples that love God, love people, and follow Jesus. Uh, As we dismiss, uh, remember we've got the ice cream social. Uh, So please feel free to stay with us because, of course, as Baptists, we're not going to go eat a healthy meal. We're going to go eat ice cream right after church. Uh, But before we close, let me just pray for us. Dearly, Father, we come before you, Lord, and we are thankful to be reminded that you are our Father, that you, Father, have shaped us and made us, and you have made us for a purpose, a purpose to glorify you and to serve your kingdom. Father, may we go throughout this week not taking days for granted, with open hearts and open minds and open eyes, may we see the opportunities all around us to speak your word and to build your kingdom. Father, we love you. We cherish you. And in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You all have a great week. God bless.